When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Professor Richard Jaffe about his new book, Seeking Shakyamuni, South Asia in the Formation of Modern Japanese Buddhism. Seeking Shakyamuni was published by Chicago University Press in 2019. Dr. Jaffe is a religious studies professor at Duke University, focusing on Japanese Buddhism. He is also the director of the Asian Pacific Studies Institute at Duke. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, Dr. Jaffe. Hello. So, as you know, our first question is always biographical. So could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in Japanese Buddhism? So uh, I grew up in the uh, north of Chicago in a suburb called Skokie, Illinois, and first became interested in Buddhism at the University of Michigan, where I was an undergraduate, although I didn't finish there. I received my bachelor's degree from San Francisco State University. And it's while I was at the University of Michigan, I began to get interested in Japanese Buddhism, particularly the practice of Japanese Buddhism. And that interest uh, drew me out to San Francisco and uh, uh, in a kind of roundabout way. And I uh, ended up practicing Zen Buddhism at the San Francisco Zen Center, which is a large Japanese Soto Zen Buddhist center in the Bay Area with three practice centers and practiced there for uh, approximately a decade or so, at which point I decided to go to graduate school and focus on Buddhist studies, particularly Japan. And I returned to academic work at Yale University, where I received my PhD in religious studies with a specialization in Japanese Buddhist studies working primarily with a scholar, the late Stanley Weinstein, who oversaw the program in Buddhist studies at at Yale University. And my first job out of graduate school, having almost completed my dissertation, was at North Carolina State University. And then I moved over to Duke in 2001, where I've been teaching Japanese Buddhism and Buddhism, Buddhist studies and religious studies ever since. So uh, that's okay. That's a brief biography. No, that's great. I actually, you know, I've I've obviously taken your class at Duke and I've read your work, but I didn't know any of this backstory. So that's fascinating. Um, now, my second question is about the genesis of your project. What made you want to write this particular book, and how does it relate to your first book, Neither Monk Nor Layman, as well as your work as the editor of the selected works of D.T. Suzuki? So, like uh, many of the scholars of my particular cohort, my generation, many of whom are nearing retirement age at this point or 
uh, in their late 50s, 60s. I uh, began, as I mentioned in my previous answer, uh, my interest in Buddhism grew out of an interest in practice. And a number of my projects are tied in some way to that biographical point or feature uh, in that uh, questions that arose for me when I was actually practicing Buddhism in, uh, at the San Francisco Zen Center. And then when I went to Japan and became involved and friends with a number of Japanese Buddhist priests and scholars, and many of the scholars in Japan are scholar clerics, really, particularly at the sectarian universities, a number of questions came to mind that, and became pivotal for my own research. And so my first book, Neither Monk Nor Layman, I look at the ways uh, in which Japanese Buddhism changed as a result of a major shift in the Buddhist world for Japanese Buddhism, which was the decriminalization of marriage, clerical marriage, and other ancillary practices, things like eating meat and so on for the Buddhist clergy. My first book was on that uh, particular shift that took place uh, from the late 19th century on through the most of the 20th century, the Japanese Buddhists were dealing with the repercussions of that shift. And in the course of working on that particular project, I noticed that a number of the figures I was looking at, in the, particularly in the early 20th century, Japanese Buddhist clerics who were involved in dealing with the repercussions of uh, the increasing, ever-increasing numbers of married clerics. A number of those clerics also traveled overseas. And although their travels in Europe and the United States had been examined to some extent, particularly by Japanese scholars, it struck me that many of them had also traveled to South and Southeast Asia and left records of those travels. So I decided to start looking into that. And as I began to examine their travel diaries and their travel accounts, it became very clear that there were more than just a handful, but numerous clerics had made similar journeys. And not only that, a significant number of them had spent long periods of time studying and practicing in South and Southeast Asia. And so uh, I began then looking at their accounts, which led me to uh, another sort of side topic, which was the material culture that they brought back with them and the influence of that material culture from Buddhist material culture from South and Southeast Asia had played on Japanese Buddhist material culture in the late 19th and first half or so of the 20th century. Uh, you also ask in your written questions about the relationship between this and, and the selected works of D.T. Suzuki, which I've been editing. It relates in that although Suzuki did not spend an extended period of time in Southeast Asia or South Asia, he only travels, he was born in 1870 and only travels to India for the first time in the early 1960s, uh, Suzuki, like these other figures, was somebody who had been very much shaped by global flows of information, people, 
and his own travels and long-term residency overseas. So that's uh, my answer to question number two. Fascinating. That's great. Thank you for connecting your previous work with this one. Um, now, in this discussion, we'll be talking about 19th and 20th century South Asian-Japanese Buddhist interactions. But I was wondering if you could give a brief overview of the history of these inter-Asian connections before the 19th century. I'm curious to hear how you would characterize the continuities and ruptures in these connections before and after the 19th century. So uh, this is a, a fairly easy question to answer in that although Japanese Buddhists, as I mentioned in the introduction to my book, for much of the history of Japanese Buddhism had a longing to travel to particularly the birthplace of the historical Buddha, of Shakyamuni Buddha, India, although it wasn't called India by them at, uh, you know, early on. It was given the name Tenjiku. There were traditional Buddhist names for that region. Almost no Japanese that we know of were able to make it to South Asia up until probably the 18th century or so. And even then, that travel was primarily merchant travel, not Japanese Buddhist travel, to Southeast Asia, where there were a number of trading towns, Nihonmachi, they were called Japanese towns, that were set up in Southeast Asia for people who were engaged in trade with that region. But that trade was quite limited. So the, succinctly stating it, there was almost no direct contact with South and Southeast Asia. And the South Asia that did exist for Japanese Buddhists was really an imagined South Asia. And it emerges in art form and in, in, in paintings, in maps, uh, from particularly in the Edo period, maps that were produced. There's a scholar, um, Max Mormon, at Barnard College who's been working on some of this artwork and some of these images of India in the Japanese Buddhist imagination, Tenjiku in the Buddhist imagination in Japan. It also figures in Japanese Buddhist scholarship and that Japanese Buddhist reformers continually try to return to the original purest forms of Japanese Buddhist practice by unearthing uh, sort of evidence of that practice in the Chinese translations of Sanskrit and Central Asian Buddhist materials. So, for example, one reformer, a Shingon cleric named Jiun, tried to restore the study of, uh, revive the study of Sanskrit using these texts, uh, particularly uh, uh, texts of Buddhist rules, Buddhist monastic rules, Vinaya texts, to revive the study of Sanskrit language in Japan. But those efforts, as valiant as they were, were quite limited. And it was only with the real opening of Japan at the start of the Meiji era on through the early 20th centuries, 20th century, that the Japanese Buddhists really became able to revive the study of Sanskrit and then Pali and other Indic languages and begin to travel in a really uh, frequent and sustained way to South and Southeast Asia. 
That's great. Thank you. Uh, that sets up sets us up well for the rest of the conversation. And as you say, this is a something you address in your introduction. Now, seeking Shakyamuni is a, an important intervention in the study of both modern Japanese Buddhism and Pan-Asianism, at least in, in my view. Thinking particularly about Japanese Pan-Asianism, it seems to me that the role of religion has been largely overlooked in the scholarship thus far. Could you talk about how this book fits into both these historiographies? And in doing so, could you tell us what the central argument of the book is? So uh, historians of Japan in particular, for the most part, uh, have not done a very good job in detailing the role of what comes to be defined as religion. There's this uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries in Japan. In Japanese history, there has been a tendency to not look at those religious factors, forces, actors in a concerted way. There are exceptions, of, of course. People, uh, scholars like Sheldon Guerin has looked at religion. He's a historian at, at Princeton. Uh, but if you look, for example, I, and this is now somewhat outdated, I know this example, but I often use this. If you look at the Cambridge history of Japan, which is being redone and hopefully will address some of these lacunae, there is uh, there are detailed chapters on religion in each of the volumes of the Cambridge history of Japan up until the, I believe it's the Edo volume, where uh, there, the Edo volume is the last volume that has a, a separate dedicated chapter on religion the 19th century, the 20th century volumes, it sort of gets mashed into other chapters. And there really isn't given the same attention that it is in the other periods. Religion sort of disappears from the map. And I, I this sort of introduces the next point, which is that uh, I think the discussions of Pan-Asianism and Japanese Pan-Asianism overlook the role of religion and religious actors, religious players, in much the same way that attention is given to Pan-Asianism and uh, very fine books like Jamil Aden's book on Pan-Asianism does pay some attention to religion. But what I found in my research was that these uh, Japanese Buddhists in many ways were the point people for the exchanges that took place and served as the basis, I think, for Pan-Asianist thinking in Japan, that these connections that they made in a very living way, their linguistic expertise that they developed, their cultural expertise, their ability to serve as cultural brokers between South Asia or Southeast Asia and Japan, played vital roles in the contact and exchanges that took place. And those exchanges gave life to the sort of Pan-Asianist thinking that develops in Japan and in other parts of South and Southeast Asia to a lesser degree. Uh, and the central argument of the book is that the history of Japanese Buddhism in the 20th century has largely been told as one that uh, involves a, a sort of dialogue between Japanese Buddhism and Europe in the United States, a kind of bipolar dialogue. But what's been left out of that picture are conversations that take place 
within Asia among Japanese Buddhist actor, well, Buddhist actors, and that those conversations that are internal to Asia also play a role in shaping the form, the response of Buddhists to colonialism, imperialism, and uh, the, the process of what they see as a kind of modernization of Buddhism in a major way. And so uh, the, at the very least, these conversations inflect uh, the development of Buddhism in the 20th century across Asia. And we need to pay attention to those conversations as well as those between European and Americans and actors in these uh, separate regions across Asia. Yeah, that's great. Both these uh, historiographical points are, are really compelling and, and make sense uh, in the reading of your book. Um, now, before we get into some of the specific chapters, could you talk a little bit about some of the conceptual frameworks you're working with? I'm thinking particularly about those related to Buddhist reform across Asia, as well as Buddhists dealing with new concepts like religion in the context of uh, European hegemony in the region. So the, the changes that take place across Asia in the 19th and 20th century, first half of the 20th century or so, are catalyzed, of course, by uh, European and American uh, interventions in Asia, imperialist, colonialist, uh, or what uh, war capitalist, what uh, Sven Burkert in his book, Empire of Cotton, calls war capitalism. These war capitalist interventions across Asia set in motion a whole series of responses by Japanese, uh, by not just Japanese, but by Asian Buddhists to the incursion of Christian missionaries, the uh, decapitation of traditional management of the Buddhist community, the Buddhist Sangha, by the, either the king, the royalty, noble elites uh, across Asia. All of these changes, the uh, growing presence of Christian missionaries who bring with them means of dissemination of Christianity and the freedom to do so that's put in place by colonial governments, uh, the spread of print documents, uh, preaching, social work in these various Asian regions from uh, what we now call Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, or Siam at the time, uh, and uh, South, well, India, not so much because there weren't so many Buddhists there, but certainly in the Bengal region, and as you move towards uh, Burma and Arakan, that region, and in Japan. Uh, in all those places, uh, Buddhists find themselves in growing competition with uh, Christian missionaries, the presence of Christianity, which is seen as the uh, harbinger of modernity by uh, colonial societies. Uh, and uh, they also find themselves wrestling with new notions of a definition, the very definition and distinction of religion and temporal power and religion and political power 
in ways that had never been defined clearly in those particular cultures. And the very notion of what of religion, the concept of religion, becomes some uh, something with which they all have to wrestle. And so we see in uh, Japan, in Sri Lanka, in Siam, these notions of, uh, uh, you know, well, a wrestling with what exactly this thing called religion is. And that goes on for decades. And one can see it particularly in Japan as they move towards the passage, the adoption of a constitution, of constitutional government, and the passage of the constitution in the late 1880s, the ways in which they have to wrestle with this and define what religion is and address such questions as whether or not to have a state religion and to what extent the state should intervene in religious affairs. So that's sort of the backdrop against which these actors are, uh, Buddhist actors are developing their new ideas about the role of Buddhism in the state, the role of uh, the ways in which Buddhism should adapt to and reform and make itself more vital to repel the threat of Christianization in the various regions and so on. Yeah, that's that's great. And, and you've basically answered my next question as well. So I'll just skip to and get to the chapter one. So in chapter one, you look at the first generation of Japanese Buddhists who went to South Asia and focus in particular on three Buddhists, Kitabatake Doryu, Shaku Kozen, and Shaku Kusoen. Who were they? What attracted them to South Asia? And I was wondering if you could also explain how Shaku Kozen seems to be an anomalous figure in terms of his relationship to Japanese nationalism in your book. So these three figures were... I guess each had their own uh, motivations. The two shakus, shaku being a surname taken traditionally by Buddhist clerics, Buddhist monks in China. It's the surname, it's sure, is the, or shaku is uh, for Shakyamuni. Uh, and this is a name that's adopted when clerics in Japan as part of the uh, reconfiguration of the relationship between religion and the state, uh, Buddhism and the state, in the uh, late 19th century, Buddhist clerics are forced to take surnames like all other Japanese subjects. And as a kind of protest, a number of Japanese clerics take the sh- surname Shur. Shak Kozen and Shak Soen, uh, they're part of the Buddhist family. They leave their home family their natal family, become part of the Buddhist family. But in any case, these three, all three men were Buddhist clerics. Kitabatake Doryu was sent by the Jodo Shinshu, the Nishi Honganji Jodo Shinshu denomination, on a world tour. As part of this effort for the Jodo Shin, the Nishi Honganji, to adapt to the changes that were taking place in the early Meiji period, there were a number of study tours that were sent to Europe and the United States of various elite figures. Uh, the Iwakura mission is one such non-Buddhist mission, very famous Buddhist mission, was went to Europe to look at uh, the patterns of European and American governance, 
the relationship between religious institutions and the state in Europe and the United States and so on. Kitabatake was one such figure. And in the course of his tour through Europe, the United States, back through Europe, and then back home to Japan, he began hearing about discoveries that were being made by the British in South Asia and uh, the uncovering of various archaeological sites associated with the history of Buddhism. And so that spurred Kitabatake on his way home to stop with a, someone, a, a, another Japanese who had been studying business at a business school in London. Uh, the two of them stopped in, uh, I believe they landed in Bombay and then traveled west to uh, Bodh Gaya. And there he visited the site of the Buddha's enlightenment and several other Buddhist sites. So that was Kitabatake's motivation. Interestingly, though, as I point out in the book, in the particular chapter, chapter one, he uh, entitles his grand work on his travels as things seen en route to India. And you can see on Tenjiku, the traditional Buddhist term for India. And so this whole tour he takes, the tail end of it, and a very short part of it, was spent in South Asia. But that becomes, in a way, the main point, the goal, uh, uh, the end point of his trip. And I think this is very much true of a number of the Japanese who go to Europe and the United States. Some of them, uh, people like um, uh, um, uh, well, excuse me, a number of these Japanese figures, they uh, study Sanskrit, they study. Uh, Pali in Europe, the United States, but their goal ultimately is to understand South Asian Buddhism as a way of coming to understand their own tradition. Shak Kozen and Shak Soen both went to examine Buddhist practice in South Asia, and both of them end up in Sri Lanka, and both end up studying with a guy, a, a, a very well-known prominent Buddhist monk, Hikaduve Sumangala. And they uh, both spend extended periods of time studying in Lanka. Shak Kozen is there for seven years, Shak Soen for approximately three years. Shak Soen is significant uh, for a number of reasons. He is one of the first Buddhist clerics to get a secular education, attending Keio University. And uh, he also is well known in Europe, the United States, because he was the Zen teacher of Suzuki Daisets, D.T. Suzuki. And so it becomes well known for that. He was a very, uh, uh, what should I say, a, a very revolutionary cleric, very progressive in his, uh, his interest in proselytizing, spreading Buddhism outside of Japan, particularly in the United States, and attends the 1893 World Parliament for Religion. Shaku Kozen is much less well-known. He was a Shingon cleric and was sent by his uncle, who was also a Shingon cleric, to Sri Lanka to 
try to see what the precept practice, the, tr the traditions of monastic practice were like in Sri Lanka, and to examine closely the precept lineage. And he becomes convinced while he's in Sri Lanka that the Japanese do not have the purest form of precept practice, precept lineage, ordination lineage in the world, but actually the Sri Lankans have preserved uh, the true precept lineage that extends back to the historical Buddha. And he becomes a convert to Sri Lankan practice, Sri Lankan Buddhism, what we today call Theravada Buddhism, and returns to Japan and tries to spread that practice unsuccessfully, but he tries to spread that practice in Japan. In many ways, he's the, a, an anomalous figure in that he's one of the few Japanese Buddhists who go to South and Southeast Asia and actually convert to the traditions of the country where he is studying and then tries to spread that. And he's also anomalous in that he does his practice does not seem to be captured by his understanding of himself in the world is of as a Buddhist first and a Japanese subject second. His Japanese-ness really plays a secondary role in his identity, which is very different from many of the other figures I studied. That's fascinating, yeah. And in chapter two, you go on to look at another fascinating uh, figure called Kawaguchi Ekai. Um, and you talk about his travels across South Asia and Tibet. Could you tell us about what motivated him to travel across Asia and how his experience, uh, experiences informed his vision to reform Japanese Buddhism? So here with Kawaguchi Ekai, who is best known, and there's several books by uh, a writer, Scott Berry, I believe is his name, on Kawaguchi, uh, he's best known for having entered Tibet around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, walking in from Nepal on his own. He's an amazing, uh, determined, very valiant, uh, somewhat obstreperous and stubborn, uh, very severe fellow from everything I've read about him, but a really fascinating man. He becomes convinced, he's ordained as an Obaku Zen cleric, Obaku being the third, there's three schools of, of, of Zen Buddhism that enter Japan, and he's the smallest school is called Obaku. He's an Obaku Zen cleric, but somewhat a dis, he's, for much of his career, he's a disaffected Obaku cleric. But he becomes convinced in his studies of the Buddhist canon in Chinese that the texts with which he's working and the texts that are being studied and used in Japan for Japanese Buddhist practice are defective. And one can see here in this uh, determination by Kawaguchi of the defectiveness of the canon, not just traditional standards of scholarship that lead him to this conclusion, but the ever-increasing uh, footprints or weight of Orientalist scholarship, according to which the oldest forms of Buddhist texts, the purest forms of Buddhist texts, are preserved in Pali and Sanskrit and possibly Tibetan. And that understanding 
which in many ways is not correct, but that notion helps push Kawaguchi to go off to South Asia and particularly Tibet to look for better versions of the texts, the sutras, the words of the Buddha, the authoritative Buddhist texts than the ones that have been preserved in Chinese. And to that end, he begins studying Pali and uh, in preparation for his trip, studying with Shakokozen, and then goes off to India and studies with Sarat Chandra Das. He studies and a, and a Tibetan Lama. He studies Tibetan and then eventually makes his way into Tibet, returns to Japan, and then after a short stint in Japan, goes back for many years to study again in India, where he studies intensively Sanskrit and Tibetan and returns to Tibet for another short trip to Tibet. But he spends a good portion of his time in South Asia. And it's that period in South Asia and the ways in which that South Asian sojourn shapes his attempts to reform Japanese Buddhism when he finally returns around 1916 to Japan uh, is, is the concern of that particular chapter. Could you uh, just briefly describe uh, what those, um, you know, what um, particularly struck him about South Asia that may, and what was he proposing in Japan, if that's okay? Sure. So uh, I think uh, he actually, interestingly, I think the veneration of Shakyamuni, the centrality of Shakyamuni is one thing that struck him uh, when he was in South Asia and when he looked at the uh, practice of Buddhism in Nepal and in Tibet. Although there were numerous Buddhists, uh, Buddhist bodhisattvas and Buddhas that were worshipped, it was the presence and, and the veneration of Shakyamuni and the emerging archaeological evidence about the life of Shakyamuni that was being uncovered by the British Archaeological Survey and those sites that were being restored by them and the increased pilgrimage by overseas Buddhist travelers from, uh, from uh, Tibet, from Nepal, from, from Burma, from Japan, that uh, convinced him about the centrality of Shakyamuni. The other thing that really uh, he picks up is the importance of the precepts in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, the, particularly the five precepts for the laity, the 10 precepts, uh, the bodhisattva that were taken in Chinese Buddhism, and the practice, precept practice that although he sees it as somewhat less than perfect, that was undertaken by Tibetan Buddhist monks also seems to have influenced him. And the law, and when he returns to Japan, interestingly, he rejects the possibility of true monastic practice in the 20th century. He saw Tibetan Buddhist practice for all of its aspirations for monastic practice and as being flawed. And what Kawaguchi proposes is a solely lay Buddhism that is centered on the veneration of Shakyamuni Buddha and the practice of the five lay precepts, the strict practice of the five, five lay precepts and what are called the 10 
good precepts. And that becomes the kernel of Buddhist practice in his eyes. And to that end, he attempts to set up two or three different completely lay Buddhist organizations in Japan. Great. Thank you for expanding on that. Um, now, in chapters three and four, you introduce two new ways of thinking about these Pan-Asian connections. First, the significance of Japanese commercial interests in India in facilitating pilgrimage to South and Southeast Asia. In doing so, you introduce the concept of the Cotton Road. And second, the underappreciation of visual and material culture in Japanese and South Asian connections. Could you expand on both these issues? And please take your time because these are both really important and quite big uh, um, moves that you're making. So one of the things that, again, I when I undertook this particular research, by looking at these individual figures, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, the, the disparate, group of Japanese Buddhists who traveled to South and Southeast Asia, and particularly then concentrating on those who'd spent extended periods of time there, several things uh, began to, uh, several pieces began to come together for me. And one was the role of steamship travel and the growth of steamship routes from Japan to South Asia stopping along the way in a series of, you know, a, a number of ports from Shanghai to Hong Kong to Singapore to Penang to Colombo to Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay. Following those routes and looking at the, I began looking at the steamships and the steamship companies. It then dawned on me that the reason for the development of these steamship routes in particular was the growth of the cotton trade and the growth of the textile industry in Japan. And textiles, as I mentioned, uh, at first silk, but then increasingly cotton became extraordinarily important industries for the development of Japanese capitalism, Japanese industrialization in the 20th century with Japanese cotton exports becoming a very significant part of overall Japanese exports by the 1930s. And the Japanese increasingly came, became, uh, came into competition with the British and the British textile and cotton trade. And with the Japanese competing for the sale of cotton goods, finished cotton goods to the South Asians, with the Japanese, like the British, purchasing raw cotton from South Asia, from India, and then transporting that raw cotton to Japan, where cotton yarn was spun and cotton cloth was made. And then that cotton cloth and cotton goods were then exported by the Japanese. Those steamship companies and those steamship routes and the presence of Japanese corporate outposts in various port towns in South Asia, in Calcutta, in Madras, in Bombay, and in the hinterlands, the trading companies, the cotton concerns, and the financial companies, 
and the steamship lines all began to have outposts there, that whole industrial infrastructure, that cotton infrastructure that became part of what Sven Burkert called the empire of cotton, that cotton trade infrastructure, what I call the cotton road, facilitated and made easier and easier the travel by Japanese Buddhists to those regions and uh, to South Asia, where they then took the train lines that part had been developed by the British to help with the cotton trade, those trains and other means of transportation into the hinterlands to view and make pilgrimage to various Buddhist sites, that all was facilitated by this cotton road. So much so that the very first corporate trips, in fact, to South Asia were sponsored by these large Japanese shipping companies like Nippon Yusen Kaisha, whose group Buddhist tours to South Asia are sponsored by some of these large Japanese shipping concerns, whose routes from steamship routes from Japan to South Asia and back had developed in part by the relationship between Jap- uh, Indian, South Asian cotton concerns like the Tata family and Japanese textile concerns uh, had helped develop these shipping routes. And these were used by the Japanese Buddhists. Another illustration of this is the, the journal The Young East, which is an English language Buddhist journal that publishes articles by Buddhists from across South and Southeast Asia and East Asia and Japan. The uh, founder of that particular journal is a major Japanese commercial figure who uh, then uh, has commercial interests in creosote trade and other forms of trade in South Asia. So the development of the commercial interests and the Buddhist interests uh, in Japan, in South Asia, go together hand in hand. Great, thank you. And the second part of the question was addressing the visual and material culture in Japanese-South Asian connections uh, that you talk about in Chapter 4. Could you address those? Sure. So the uh, another thing that struck me, again, as I began looking at these figures, was the extent to which they brought back with them and practiced various forms of calligraphy, artwork, uh, bringing back with them Buddha images from South and Southeast Asia and enshrining them and using them as central figures of worship in their temples, the extent to which that material culture played a role in the reconceptualization of Japanese Buddhism in the 20th century. And so to give you one example, uh, let's take, uh, well, several examples, Japanese Buddha images images of the historical Buddha of Shakyamuni, I should say, Shakyamuni Buddha, were brought back in large numbers by these travelers to South and Southeast Asia. And many of these statues, what I found when I went to the temples where these travelers had practiced, uh, was that these figures, these images, were still there in these temples. Some of them Uh, were no longer used as the central object of worship in those temples, but they were still there and had been at one time central images 
of worship in those temples. And they never really make it into museums. They're not museumified, if you will, in the same way that a lot of later imports from South and Southeast Asia are in Japan. But these images are both a sign of a successful pilgrimage to those regions and a sign of connection between those temples and South and Southeast Asia. So in other words, they signal, they symbolize the Pan-Asian reach of of Japanese Buddhism. The Japanese Buddhism is an Asian Buddhism. Another example that I look at of material culture that I think is unique in many ways to Japan and this uh, late 19th, 20th century is the emergence of polylingual, what I call polylingual calligraphy, in which these travelers who become acquire some expertise in Indic languages, be it uh, Tibetan or uh, Pali, Sanskrit, uh, Sinhala, uh, these, well, non-Semitic languages, I should say, to be more accurate, these figures who acquire this expertise, these Japanese figures, begin writing out Buddhist expressions and phrases in calligraphy, which is quite a common practice for decorating their temples or for gifting to parishioners, not just in Sino-Japanese or Japanese, but simultaneously in multiple languages, in Sanskrit, Devanagari, in Sinhala, in Pali, written in Sinhala script, in English even, and in Japanese or Sino-Japanese. And these various calligraphies of phrases like the uh, verse of the seven Buddhas, uh, do no evil, do all good things, purify your mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. This sort of calligraphy becomes a fairly widespread practice among a number of these travelers who devour who developed linguistic expertise. Most prominently, a number of these travelers also fund or help develop the the construction of a very uh, eclectic kind of pan-Asian forms of Buddhist architecture in major temples. And these, particularly within the Nishi Honganji of Jodo Shinshu, you end up with temples like the what still, ex- still exists today, the Tsukiji Honganji, or the construction of various uh, what are called Gandharan-style stupa, housing relics of Japanese war dead. These uh, Pan-Asian, particularly Indic forms of architecture, again, are signal the connection between Japan and Japanese Buddhism and other forms of Asian Buddhism. And these forms of Buddhism are a way of instantiating a vision of Japanese Buddhism as not just Japanese, but again, Asian, as Pan-Asian. And I think this is important because there's been a lot of scholarship on the development of the notion of world religions. And much of that scholarship has paid attention to the textual ways, textual changes, doctrinal changes 
that reflect the ways in which religions in the 20th century come to think of themselves as world religions, as extending beyond their own regional borders. I think in the case of Japanese Buddhism, these kinds of uh, material culture of artwork, of images that are brought back, and particularly the architecture, which is quite prominent, uh, and the the uh, open showing, the showing the of these artworks to the public. These all are ways of demonstrating to a larger Japanese public that Japanese Buddhism is connected to a broader Asian Buddhist culture, and not just the Sinitic culture to with which. Japanese Buddhists would be much more familiar, but an Asian culture that extends to South and Southeast Asia as well. So that's what I think is the significance of this visual and material culture. Great, thank you. Yeah, and it's it's really convincing, and that's probably my favorite chapter of of the book, which is you know all of which is great. Um, now, chapter five is entitled "Global Waves on Omurabe." Um, could you talk about how? Calcutta, Ceylon, Europe, and the town of Kawatana in Japan were connected through the English translation of a Buddhist text written in Chinese. So, again, this is uh, one of these stories that as I began looking at these various figures that just uh, I uncovered through my archival research. And there is a, uh, particularly among Practitioners of mindfulness meditation, vipassana meditation in Europe and the United States, one of the uh, fundamental texts that's used, basic texts that is used, is a text that in English is translated as, uh, the English translation is called the Path of Freedom. The Path of Freedom is uh, in back translation. There really is no extant Pali version from which to derive this title, but the extant version of the, t- the, the back translation that's reconstructed is the Vimutti Maga, is the translation of the, a, what in Japanese pronunciation of the Sino-Japanese is called the Gadatsu, Gadatsu Doron, a text which is believed to have been written originally in Pali, but there's no extant Pali version. There's only a Chinese version, the Chinese version of the Buddhist canon. And this particular text was translated, if you look at the English translation that's published by the, I believe it's the uh, Pali Text Society that uh, translates this, or the Buddhist Text Society uh, is the translator of this text. Um, Yeah, Buddhist, let's see, let me get you the exact translation, is the, uh, oops, sorry. Hang on one second. The Buddhist Publication Society. That particular text uh, is translated by two Sri Lankans, Somatera Kamindatera, and a Japanese figure, Ehara. Uh, and Ehara is a priest at a temple in Kawatana, Japan, Josaiji. And the two Sri Lankans made their way there uh, through a series of uh, uh, happens through happenstance and uh, desire to know more about Buddhism and to bring back to Sri Lanka and help revive Sri Lankan Buddhism 
by uncovering some of these texts that were no longer extant in Pali, but have been preserved in Chinese. And Somatera and Kamindatera hear about this, the existence of these texts from a Japanese, from a Chinese Buddhist, a, a student, a lay student, of a very famous Chinese Buddhist reformer, Tai Shu, who spends time, Wang Mulam, who spends time in Ceylon having a dialogue, encountering various Sri Lankan Ceylonese Buddhists, they hear about the existence of these texts in Chinese. And they travel from uh, Sri Lanka to Shanghai to hopefully work on some of these texts with Wang Mulam. Uh, And by the time they get to Shanghai, Wang Mulam is deceased, and they can't find the resources to work on these texts there, so they travel to Tokyo. And in Tokyo, they encounter a prominent Nichiren school Buddhist cleric, Kimura Nichiki, who is teaching at a Japanese Buddhist sectarian university, Risho University, in part in English about Mahayana Buddhism. And Kimura had spent decades studying in Calcutta with a series of South Asian Buddhist scholars and pundits before returning to Japan, where he taught at Risho University. And the two Sri Lankan Buddhists encounter him there and express their desire to learn more about these texts that are existent only in Chinese. And he puts them in touch with a student of his, Ehara Ryozui, who had studied with him in Tokyo, but is now returned to his home temple in the north of Omura Bay, north of Nagasaki, in Kyushu, Japan, at his home temple, Josaiji. And they agree to go to Josaiji and spend time with Ehara and help him translate the writings of the founder of his school of Buddhism, Nichiren Buddhism, the founders of of Nichiren, I'm sorry, the writings of Nichiren, to translate those writings into English, some of them. And in exchange, Ehara agrees to translate the Gedatsu Doran with them into English, using a recent Japanese translation of the Sino-Japanese text that had just been published by a scholar in uh, Kyushu. And so the three of them working together in Kawatana, this remote town, very beautiful town, right on the mouth of the Kawatana River that flows into Omura Bay, uh, they work intensively over the course of a period of months and come up with a translation uh, of the Path of Freedom, which they call the Vimutti Maga, the Gerazu Doran, the Vimutti Maga, and they send a cyclostyled uh, old form of mimeographing or reproducing, copying the text back to Ceylon to uh, Nyanapanakatera, a German convert to Ceylonese Buddhism, who then helps disseminate this text to the rest of the Lankan Buddhist community where it becomes 
text that's used for the practice of meditation. And it's finally published in the late 50s, early 1960s as the Vimutti Maga by the Buddhist Publication Society. So uh, that's in uh, sort of the story of this convoluted story of the publication of this text. And it there's a line, uh, well, you can see that this town, Kawatana, and this temple, Josaiji, although it seems isolated, is extraordinarily connected to these world circuits by these figures, uh, Kimura, uh, Ehara, and these Sri Lankans. Yeah, it's it's a really great story. And the way you weave all these places in through this text is is, is fascinating. Um, now, in the concluding chapter, you briefly discuss the connections fostered by uh, Japanese Pan-Asian Buddhists, uh, how these connections that you're, you've been talking about were instrumentalized for the war effort by the Japanese Empire from the 1930s until the end of World War II. Could you talk about this part of the book? Uh, this was particularly interesting to me as it mirrors the literature on Japan's quote-unquote Islam policy, yet based on your footnotes, it seems like there isn't a lot of scholarship on the Buddhist side of things. Uh, yeah, so as I mentioned in the last chapter, this knowledge, this expertise of the Buddhists really gets deployed uh, as Japan uh, begins, enters the 15, what they call the 15-year, scholars oftentimes call the 15-year, 15 15-years 15 war period from 1931 to 1945, as Japan gets increasingly enmeshed in the war in China and then has this southern strategy to expand to gain resources by expanding into South and Southeast Southeast Asia and then South Asia. They begin uh, in, employing and deploying this knowledge, this linguistic expertise that had been developed by these various Buddhist figures, one of whom, one crucial figure, for example, I mentioned in the previous answer, Kimura Nichiki, or Kimura Nikki spent decades in South Asia and then comes back and teaches at Risho University and also becomes uh, a, a, one of the trustees of the association, the International Association for Buddhist Studies, which republishes uh, a version of the Young East as part of outreach to South Asia. This organization hosts scholars from and monks from South and Southeast Asia in Japan and helps disseminate what increasingly becomes a vision for the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere among these Buddhists. And these Buddhists publish in English, some of these South Asian Buddhists in the International Association's journal. And in addition, they establish a Pali Academy uh, for training Japanese Buddhist clerics in the Pali language, so they then can be sent to Southeast Asia to serve as go-betweens uh, between the Japanese military and colonial governments and the Southeast Asian Buddhist monks and Sangha. And so that's another way in which these uh, this in kind of knowledge gets deployed 
Interestingly, Kimura, I mentioned, plays a major role in this as a trustee of this association that's formed uh, in Japan. He also, uh, he trained Ehara, who worked on the translation of the Garatsu Doran. Ehara gets sent by the Japanese military, and this uh, he gets sent to Vietnam, to Indochina, where he also helps, uh, plays a role, which is not, there's not much known about that. There's just some hints that he was sent as part of a Japanese military contingent to Vietnam. So you can see the way in which this knowledge of of South and South Asian, Southeast Asian Buddhism, Buddhist culture, and particularly language and linguistic expertise plays a role in the Japanese war effort in the uh, late, in the 1930s on into the 1940s. Great, thank you. Um, So I've taken so much of your time, uh, but before I let you leave, could you tell us what you're working on next? So simultaneously with my work on finishing this book, as Sammy mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I've been working on a four-volume series as the general editor of the selected works of D.T. Suzuki, Suzuki Daisets. And that is now done. I'm the volume editor of one of the volumes, volume one on Zen Buddhism. But there are three other volumes with three other volume editors, four other volumes editors, actually. One one volume is co-edited. That's completed, published by University of California Press. And I am now beginning a major project, which is a a biography of Suzuki Daisets. And again, uh, like many of the figures I've looked at in Seeking Shakyamuni, Suzuki Daisets, DT Suzuki, is one of the great uh, figures uh, in the globalization, uh, plays a major role in the globalization of. Buddhism, and really, in many ways, is a global citizen. And the kind of Buddhism that he proposes and constructs is very much a Buddhism that is uh, sort of transcends just being Japanese Buddhism, in many ways, is a product of a whole string of uh, global influences and sort of the impingement of global forces and global conversations on his thinking that result in his particular vision of what Buddhism should be in the 20th century. And in addition to that major project, the biography is part of that. I'm also editing his lectures that he gave at Columbia University in 1952 and 1953, in which he presents this vision late in his life to an American audience that was open to the public in New York in the early 1950s. And so Columbia University Press will be publishing a version of those lectures with my introduction and notes. So those are the two big DT Suzuki-related projects that I'm now working on. That's great. He's a, he's a really fascinating figure. And so I look forward to reading those books when they're out and maybe having you on again uh, on New Books Network to talk about them. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jaffe. 
Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you and uh, be well. Take care.